From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. One of my favorite things about teaching at UW is uh, every morning walking up Bascom Hill to North Hall. There was also something about this department that was really wonderful. I felt like I was joining a place where the kind of work that I did would be valued and respected. People were pleasant and thoughtful and really intellectually engaged. In those instances, I'm always reading from the Badgers. This, 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 this is 1050 Bascom. Today I'm honored to welcome Chancellor Angela Merkel back to the White House. Over the past Since 2005, Angela Merkel has served as Chancellor of Germany, presiding over a number of crises and working with three different U.S. presidents. We have a great relationship. Chancellor, I want to congratulate you once again on your election victory, fourth term in office. It's really something. Congratulations. Unlike the presidency in the United States, there is no term limit to serving as chancellor in Germany. In 2017, Angela Merkel was elected a fourth time to the chancellorship, and should she serve her term through, Merkel will leave office in 2021 after 16 years of service, tying her as the longest-serving chancellor in German history. During her time, Merkel has dealt with the Eurozone crisis, the global financial crisis of 2008, an increasingly aggressive Russia, and the so-called migration crisis of 2015, not to mention recent strains in the United States and Germany alliance. Now, in her 14th year as chancellor, she's been a defining figure and important actor in German, European, and world politics. In 2015, she was named Time Person of the Year. She's been called the leader of the free world and is consistently named as one of the most powerful leaders in the world. I'm Michael Makowski, and on this episode of 1050 Bascom, we speak to Professor Niels Ringe and German Consul General Herbert Kfella about what Merkel's time as Chancellor has meant, what challenges Germany faces, and the future of German politics and the German-American relationship. Niels Ringe is a professor in political science, as well as the Jean Monnet Chair and Director of the Center for European Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research interests lay in European Union politics, comparative legislatures, political parties, social networks, and elections. He has written a number of books and articles on these topics, and teaches courses on comparative politics, the European Union, and German politics. I sat down with Professor Ringet to get his insight into recent developments in German politics, to discuss what Chancellor Angela Merkel has meant to Germany, and what her departure from politics might mean. You gave a talk called The Twilight of Angela Merkel, and it sort of focused on German politics more broadly and what, as Merkel's time as a chancellor comes to a close, sort of what the effects will be of her leaving and sort of the domestic political changes within Germany. From what I understand, Germany party politics have been pretty disrupted in recent years and are shifting. In your talk, you spoke a lot about the different party politics among the parties in the Bundestag, in the German parliament and how those are shifting. In particular, the rise of the Alternative Deutschland, so the alternative for Germany, has been sort of surprising and for some people troubling development. Could you give a quick recap of what the alternative for Germany is? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that's actually notable in the first place is that uh, uh, far-right parties, anti-immigrant parties, have uh, historically not done well in Germany mm -hmm. after 1945. So, uh, you know, occasionally you would have um, a party like the uh, Republicana, for example, which is actually not like the Republicans, but uh, was just their name, but it was actually a far-right party. They would, you know, be electorally successful maybe at the state level for mm -hmm. a relatively shorter period of time. 
But uh, we haven't actually had a far-right party that has entered the German federal parliament and that has been more consistently electorally uh, successful as the AFD has. So that's kind of unusual. And uh, generally, the explanation has been that uh, there's a real uh, taboo associated with voting for a far-right party because mm-hmm. of Germany's history. And so far-right parties have not done well. That's in part, of course, also because there's a 5% hurdle for representation in the German parliament. So you have to at least win 5% of the popular vote right. to actually be represented in parliament. And many parties, you know, of these far-right fringe parties were not able to, to clear that. I think that it is actually quite important that the um, AfD did not start out as a anti-immigrant party, but that it was a party that came, you know, was founded essentially in the context of the euro crisis. And it mm-hmm. was an anti-euro party, then merged more generally into a anti-EU party. And only since then, and since having established itself to some extent electorally, has it been moving more in a um, direction that's more associated with far-right politics. I think that that probably matters because it got around that taboo to some extent. And in fact, uh, it's actually quite important in that context that the uh, original leadership of the party has been forced out. Right. Right. And so they started out, uh, you know, the, the people who really started the party and were uh, responsible for the early successes have now been essentially removed from their leadership positions or have even left the party, yeah. like Frau Petri did, for example. And so uh, it is in that sense a new party now, but I think that its origins are important because they got around that problem of that uh, electoral taboo. Do you know where a lot of those people, because it Founded in 2013, I believe, and only entered into the Bundestag after the 2017 federal elections. I mean, 12 to 14 percent, did you say, or 12 to? I mean, that seems to be where, where you know, realistically, it, it's kind of possible vote share, right? right. So anything, anything around 15 percent federally, like at the in particular in West Germany, would be considered a really good result for them. Okay. Um, in, in East Germany, it wouldn't be. So that's where mm-hmm. they get more votes. We can talk about that a little bit more if you're interested. But um, uh, generally speaking, it seems like it's kind of base constituency is between 10 and 15 yeah. percent. Right. And that's a pretty significant number. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you have done any work or know about where those voters have come from. Are these people who are voting generally for the first time or are they people who are have become sort of disillusioned with some of the older parties in Germany? And um... Yeah, that definitely plays a role. So there is, of course, a crisis of the mainstream parties mm-hmm. uh, to some extent. And uh, yes, there has been some disillusionment with some of the mainstream parties. But, you know, the, the AfD tends to do better in East Germany. You know, actually, to some extent, they have been winning votes uh, from the left party, yep. uh, which might seem a little bit surprising, but you know, there's a, more of a tendency, I guess, to have to engage in protest voting in East Germany mm-hmm. um, and less of a um, connection to the mainstream parties in the first place, historically speaking. And so the IFD is doing particularly well in the East German states. Its voters, again, I think that it probably matters that uh, they started out as an anti-EU party because there really wasn't an anti-EU party on the political right in Germany. Mm-hmm. So the Euro skeptics tend to sit on the like far left and on the far right in the uh, political spectrum across Europe. And the left party is, is a kind of Eurosceptic party, not across the board, but on, on some key issues. And there really wasn't a far right or a party on the political right that actually took an anti-EU position. And clearly there was some demand for that. And so the initial group of voters were people who maybe would have otherwise supported the CDU or the FDP. But both of those, the FDP, the, the kind of more uh, pro-market centrist uh, party, liberal in the European sense or in the tr- classical sense as opposed to the American sense, they might have supported those kinds of parties, but neither one of those parties actually caters to a you know anti-EU or Eurosceptic mm-hmm. sentiment. And mm-hmm. that I think was what, what in part opened the door for them. You know? Yeah. And you talked a little bit about how the other parties sort of have reacted to this as well. 
and the directions you maybe see them going or maybe see them having the opportunity to move. Um, yeah. Could you just comment a little bit maybe on some of the bigger parties like the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, or um, the Union of the Christian Democratic? Yeah, so I, I have to say that that was pure speculation. Right. Um, so that's, that's you know, the, it's a really big caveat here. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, the, the, what I did in the talk, I put up a picture of the German political space mm -hmm. and I different, you know, I, it was essentially made up of two dimensions, the uh, traditional economic left-right divide, which we're all more or less familiar with. And then I created on the basis of um, some data, um, I created a kind of closed versus open dimension mm -hmm. uh, that captures things like multiculturalism, support for the EU or not, traditional values or not. And so you can basically kind of on, in this two-dimensional space, you can place the different parties. And it's mostly not particularly surprising that, you know, the Social Democrats, the Greens, and also the left party are towards the left end of the spectrum and then more towards the open side of yep. the open closed dimension when the IFD is at the other end where you have they're, they're far to the right um, on the, on the uh, left-right dimension and then they are on the closed side mm -hmm. um, of this new open closed dimension. And so on the basis of that, I speculated a little bit about where there is essentially room for yeah. uh, parties to go. What was really quite evident in particular is that there isn't a party that is leftist and closed. So, mm -hmm. you know, having having a party that actually, you know, for example, might be in favor of welfare, of the welfare state and social services provision and things like that, but at the same time is against multiculturalism, against the European Union, against immigrants. And, you know, that was actually, when we're looking at that picture, it's kind of difficult to describe in a podcast, sure. but, yeah. you know, it's basically this wide open space where there yes. is no party that is really occupying that particular squadrant of the political space. And so I speculate a little bit about how the left party might be moving into that space. And we're seeing mm -hmm. some of that, that the left party is taking some more, you know, almost nationalist positions, but also that the AfD might be moving in that direction so that the AfD has realized that there are people who are in favor of the welfare state, right? They're not uh, against market intervention. They're not against uh, social services provision, but uh, they want the services to go to people who are essentially ethnic Germans. And so I talked a little bit about that. There was a pension proposal put forward uh, by uh, Höcke, one of the uh, prominent politicians in the IFD that basically um, was, you know, was in favor of a general pension, right, across the board, but then there would be a bonus payment for ethnic Germans, right? right? And so it could very well be that that is, you know, where some, some voters might find that quite appealing. And in part, this then gets to the question of the social Democrats, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, some of the core voters of the Social Democratic Party might actually like that, right? Yeah. They're in favor of a welfare state, and um, but uh, they might not want it to go to people who don't look like us, right? Mm -hmm. To kind of the other. And we've seen something similar in France, for example, where Marine Le Pen did not run on an anti-welfare state platform, but she actually ran in favor of a welfare state, but it was supposed to be a welfare state for the French, right? yeah. not for mm -hmm. Not for immigrants. That might be a new division. Um, and so we could see, I could imagine that the left party might try to win some votes over in that area, that the IFD might, and the SPD in particular, the Social Democrats, as you mentioned, they really are in part in trouble because they really have nowhere to go. They can't really move further to the left because they are already the Greens and the left party. They can't really move towards the more open side of the uh, open closed dimension because the Greens have you know, very successfully claimed that spot for themselves, but they can also can really move towards, you know, either closed or to the political right, because mm -hmm. that undermines the basic, you know, the, the, the basic credibility of the party as a leftist party. And so I thought that that picture you know, really illustrated quite yeah. nicely the trouble that the SPD is in. Yeah, like you said, it's hard to describe this picture, but you sort of identified these gaps in the ideology of certain spectrums among the German parties that yeah. 
there could be possible movement toward because there's sort of a gap right now that that's that's not filled yeah, no, by no a party. party occupies that right. space. Yes. And what I'm hearing is that a lot of this is in response to some of the decisions, political decisions um, that have been made by and under Merkel as chancellor, particularly with the issue of migration. And I thought of just what the chancellorship means in general, I guess. In my head, I make comparisons to, to the presidency. Is that completely accurate or what are sort of the big differences between no, I, I think you want to more think of it as like a prime minister. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, Germany has a parliamentary system. It's mm -hmm. just that we happen to call our chancellor the chancellor as opposed to prime minister. Um, but the person is selected like a prime minister is by mm -hmm. parliament as opposed to in a direct election. And uh, the relationship between the executive and the legislature is one of, you know, that that's it's a parliamentary system, not a presidential one. And so, you know, at the same time, the, there's a certain, institutionally speaking, the chancellor is more powerful than, the, say, the British prime minister, who is more supposed to be a first among equals in the okay. cabinet, while the chancellor is formally in an elevated position relative to the rest of the cabinet. Uh, there's the idea that the chancellor can kind of claim certain topics and make them, uh, in German, we say a chefsache, right? Okay. A, a, you know, that's a matter that the boss is taking care yeah. of and she can claim those. To some extent, then, the chancellor is perhaps slightly more powerful than the prime minister is, but structurally speaking, institutionally speaking, it's a, it's a prime minister. So I'm gonna bring it to the chancellor and talk a little bit about her. How would you describe Angela Merkel personally? Sort of what's her style? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, personally, I can't really say, but I can tell you a little bit about her as a politician, <laughs> sure. which, of course, uh, plays into this. Uh, so Angela Merkel is, um, you know, I, I think that it matters where where she's from. Mm -hmm. You know, she's she's East German. She's the daughter of a Lutheran pastor, um, but she grew up in East Germany. She is a trained physicist. So there is something very systematic about how she approaches right. the world. So it's not entirely surprising that she's a scientist. She, in the 1990s, served under Helmut Kohl, who was kind of her, uh, you know, the, the, the person who took her under her wings in her in the early days of her career. She was environmental minister and she didn't have much of a political profile. She was almost, um, yeah, I mean, not just almost, she was she was very much underestimated by people. Okay. And I think that she was actually able to take advantage of her that favor. to some extent. Mm -hmm. Played in her favor, yeah. And then in the course of the, the there was a campaign uh, donation scandal um, that rattled the CDU, in particular Helmut Kohl, the longtime chancellor in the late 1990s. And she basically took advantage of that. So, and, and it was almost out of nowhere. It was this element of, you know, nobody was really expecting this from right. her. She was the general secretary of the party. And she basically made a play for it. And she made a play for the leadership of the party and she forced uh, Kohl out. She has been the dominant figure in the CDU ever since. She has been party leader until very recently. Mm -hmm. uh, she was party leader for almost two decades. She has been very adept at getting rid of political rivals, especially mm -hmm. men interestingly mm -hmm. uh there have been many men who've tried to dislodge her right. in one way or another and she has uh, won out in every single one of those power contests uh sometimes uh ahead of time you know she basically sure. she she would force out a rival before it really became a threat to her and she right. was very adept at that she is uh known as somebody who is uh, quite pragmatic almost to a fault some people would say that she's willing to make compromises and we actually saw that in the euro crisis a lot where she would uh, always, she would yeah she would move but she would always you know she she came across as this very principled person mm -hmm. uh but at the same time she actually throughout the crisis luckily um, she ended up moving her red lines continuously mm -hmm. uh, and quite pr pragmatically in order to, on the one hand, not make too much of a commitment, <laughs> but at the same time, 
also, um, you know, always just enough to, you know, stave off any kind of further crisis. And so at the international and at the domestic level, because in part of, because of her persona, she has been seen as this, this element of continuity. She's been around for a really long time. There's a certain degree of predictability. You know what you get from her. And actually the decision that she made in 2015 to open the borders um, to, to a large number of refugees was in a way uncharacteristic for her because mm-hmm. it would be the kind of thing that she might have shied away from. She might have dealt with more pragmatic Okay. which would have meant not actually you know taking this political right. risk of opening the borders but uh, she did so on the basis you know essentially on moral grounds mm-hmm. uh, also referencing Germany's history and the particular ethical commitments that are needed for Germany to to uh, essentially acknowledge what happened in the past and uh, have that inform what happens uh, in the present and you know it was in a sense a political blunder because we can certainly trace her, departure back to that moment in time. Yep. Um, I doubt that that would mean that she regrets it because I've, you know, what, I, I took it to mean that if, if, if Merkel is taking this kind of non-pragmatic posi- uh, decision in a way, then it must really mean, mean something. something. And so, right. uh, yeah, I think that that's the kind of politician that she is. But again, I some people have construed that or interpret this as uh, not a positive trait in the sense that she has been very pragmatic in her you know coalitions that she has formed and she has moved the CDU towards the political center and her critics would say that she has made the party less distinguishable from other political parties and that that is one of the reasons why the CDU has been facing the kind of electoral troubles that okay. uh, it has today. Interesting. She is now in her 14th year of chancellor as Germany and I know I just think of myself, I'm 21 years old and 14 years is a big part of my life. I have German friends who have grown up who are my age that have really known nothing but Merkel as the premier of their country. Yeah, I, I, I'm in the same position. I grew up in Germany uh, where Helmut Kohl became chancellor when I was a pretty small child. Okay. And then he was in office for 16 years. Uh, was it 16 years? I think for 16 years. Wow. And so it's the same thing. I, I you know, I, I remember when Gerhard Schröder was elected mm-hmm. uh, and people would say Bundeskanzler Schröder, Chancellor Schröder, and it sounded wrong because yeah. <laughs> I never heard <laughs> right. the term yeah. Bundeskanzler associated with anybody but Helmut Kohl. Yes. And as you point out, that mm-hmm. is the, there are a lot of young Germans who are in a similar Right. What kind of effect do you think that might have or what might that mean for a democratic country to have the same leader for that long? I know you talked about Merkel kind of sometimes um, being very pragmatic in her decisions. Maybe that helps. That's how she gets reelected. I don't know. But what sort of effect does that have for someone to have the same person as times change in the same position? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's the basic trade off between, you know, continuity and change essentially here, Mm -hmm. right? Change can be a good thing. Continuity can be a good thing. Uh, I think that there is something telling about Germans liking having people in office for a really long time. One of the first things that I learned about American politics when I came to the U.S. was that while in Germany, uh, you know, in in the U.S. you can't win an election by not promising change. Mm -hmm. And in Germany, you can't win an election if you promise too much change. (laughs) Um, and I think there's something to this with Merkel as well. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she has gotten reelected multiple times. So people, you know, as much as they might be complaining about her at times, um, fundamentally, they have continued to choose her as uh, as chancellor. Now, it might very well be that at some point with her, it's 14 years with Kohl, it was 16 years to reach this point of saturation where people are like, OK, it's, a, you know, it's enough already. Yeah. Yeah. And it's time for new blood. 
Yeah, I'm not sure what the answer is specifically to your question about what it means. I mean, I, I guess it does mean that you you have to be somewhat less concerned about, you know, always having to propose something new and always having to do something that is, you know, outside of that is unexpected or something like that, because you you know that there's a greater likelihood that you can get reelected anyway. So it might very well be that it means that on the one hand, people, Germans, you know, are fairly risk averse, <laughs> generally speaking, uh, uh, and they don't like change, uh, but uh, you know it also might mean that it puts you in a position to actually make hard choices at times right. because you don't necessarily face the electoral consequence mm -hmm. quite as immediately. Mm -hmm. So after the 2017 federal elections, there was a lot of trouble with forming a coalition. The prior coalition was between the union and the SPD, and that sort of ran into some trouble after the federal elections and sent the government into almost a free state. I was in Germany at the time, and I remember hearing comparisons to the United States at the time, which of course had a government shutdown. What sort of challenges will Germany face moving forward in coalition building? And what are the importance of coalition building in Germany? Yeah, no, that's that's a, uh, that's a really good question. I think actually one of the really complicated things, uh, you know, we, we've talked already a little bit about the, the changes in the party political landscape, the AFD entering the stage, there being some movement, perhaps there being a second dimension, right, of political contestation, this open, closed dimension that might become more important in not just driving German politics, but also maybe shaping people uh, electoral behavior. A lot of things are in flux. And one of the repercussions of this is that the process of building a, a majority coalition, right, mm -hmm. which used to be something that was fairly predictable for a really long time in German politics, is there has become quite unpredictable. So it used to be the case after the Second World War and into the 1980s that uh, there were basically three parties that really mattered. So you had the Social Democrats, the Christian Democrats, um, and then the Free Democrats, which is a, a liberal party, um, um, you know, libertarian more mm -hmm. in, the, in the American sense, uh, but a pro-market party, but also very much in favor of, especially historically speaking, of, you know, civil liberties, really big emphasis yeah. on that. And so it used to be that you had a left, a center-right party, center-left party, and then the liberals would basically decide who they would coalesce with, right? Mm -hmm. And then that would determine what the government looked like. So mm -hmm. you would either have a CDU, FDP, or an SPD, FDP coalition. And in the 1980s, the Green Party entered the scene, and it basically turned the party system into uh, what's sometimes described as bipolar, right? So you had okay. center-left party, the Social Democrats, and then you had a more marginal cent uh, leftist party, the Greens. And on the political right, you had the Christian Democrats and the Liberals. And then it became a question, like, say, 1998, right? In, in, in that election, it became a question of essentially which of these two camps would win out, right? So would the Greens and the Social Democrats together muster a majority or would the in, in Parliament or would the Christian Democrats and the Liberals win out mm -hmm. uh, and muster a, a majority? This then got disturbed uh, on the left side with the rise of the left party, which actually grew out of the Communist Party in East Germany, which used to run under the as, as the PDS, but then became the left party. And essentially, their electoral success, especially in East Germany, made it very difficult for the Social Democrats and the Greens mm -hmm. to win a majority of their own. And the SPD still is ruling out a coalition with the left party at the federal level. And that basically meant that almost by default, we would end up with one of two coalition options, either the liberals and the Christian Democrats. Democrats would win enough seats to form a coalition of their own, or if they did not, really the only option was a grand coalition between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. That's basically how we ended up with two grand coalitions over the last uh, 15 years. Now, this whole electoral math is further thrown into turmoil by the rise of the AFD, because now the AFD is winning votes on the political right that the Liberals and the Christian Democrats
Democrats can no longer win on right. their own, and they basically will not be able to form a coalition of their own. And they also are ruling out a coalition with the AFD at this point. So basically then what this means is that we have to have in Germany, and here I'm talking, I guess, as a German, I'm saying we, <laughs> uh, we have to be more open to kind of unfamiliar types of uh, alliances. After the 2017 election, the Christian Democrats, the liberals and the Greens started negotiating and actually came pretty close to coming to an agreement. And then it was not the Greens, right? Not the leftist party that FDP. walked out, but it was the FDP. It was the liberals who walked out of these talks, right? And so the Greens would have been quite willing to form a coalition with the Christian Democrats. The Christian Democrats would have been quite willing to form a coalition with the Greens. And I think we're just going to see more of that. So we're going to see more kind of strange bedfellows in a sense that you might have a Leftist party like the Greens coalescing with a center-right party, perhaps with the, liberal dem- uh, with the liberals um, uh, as well. Maybe we'll see some minority governments, which was already something that was discussed in Germany after the 2017 election, so that there is uh, one party or two parties together form a government, but without having a legislative majority backing them. And so they basically have to kind of build a policy coalition on, you know, on an ad hoc basis on each issue. So the electoral math has got much more complicated in Germany. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, that means that things become much more unpredictable in terms of what possible coalitions we might see in the future. But I think it also means that you know parties and voters have to be willing to accept these new realities and these kinds of unusual alliances in the first place. Great. Thank you. Sure. It isn't only the domestic situation that is changing and being challenged, but also the international situation, specifically the relationship between Germany and the United States. As Consul General for the German Consulate General in Chicago, Herbert Kfella acts like an ambassador on a small scale, focusing on diplomatic matters of German interest across the Midwest. Herbert Kfella has worked for over 30 years as a German diplomat in various posts around the world, but has been stationed in Chicago since 2014. I sat down briefly with him to discuss the current challenges in the German-American relationship. Could you sort of identify some of the current challenges in the German-American relationship? First, I would like to say that we have always had an interest in strong and good transatlantic relations. Mm -hmm. We have uh, accepted and appreciated and uh, cherished the leadership role of the United States. Germany has been dependent on the United States after World War II when we developed our democracy. And without the United States, the unification process of Germany after the war came down in 89 would have been totally different because the United States administration, uh, Bush administration helped us to overcome resistance from including our closest European allies, Mm -hmm. France and the United Kingdom. We will never forget that. So there is this philosophical positive attitude uh, and political positive attitude, which is at the moment challenged because we continue with a process that started under the Obama administration, name it the uh, pivot towards Asia. We became aware of that and uh, this has developed in the same direction only with a different wording, with a different discourse or different narrative, which is more challenging these Mm -hmm. days. If you openly uh, question from the part of the administration, the 
uh, participation and the willingness of the German government to uh, do its fair share in uh, NATO, uh, then this is among the uh, problem areas that yeah. we uh, currently have. Because even though there is some reason for that um, that criticism, which I can understand, just pronouncing it in the way that right. uh, has been done in uh, the past few months uh, does not strengthen the alliance, but rather weaken it. We know that we are being targeted by Russia, which is unfortunately under Putin uh, now quite aggressive. And the most significant example of that is the annexation of Crimea. Mm -hmm. So it does not do our alliance good if we um, uh, have that type of discourse among friends and allies. The other area where we have differences is in trade. It is difficult to communicate to uh, German uh, business who has invested heavily in the United States over the decades, that now suddenly German business is almost an enemy mm -hmm. because if steel and aluminum from uh, Germany and other uh, countries in, uh, in Europe is being considered as a threat to the security of the United States. And if there is on the horizon a threat uh, to increase tariffs for imported cars from Germany for the same reason, this is very difficult for the German government to communicate to business uh, and the manufacturers uh, in German industry still claiming, well, this is a sign of strong and, and good right. transatlantic relationship. Then we have had differences concerning the Iran policy. Mm -hmm. We um, argued that, yes, we knew very well of the role that Iran plays in exporting terrorism, uh, that uh, uh, the uh, there that it is a destabilizing factor in uh, the uh, Middle East. At the same time, we had no reason to believe, and there is no proof of that, that Iran violated the agreement that we concluded on uh, stopping its nuclear program. So cancelling an agreement on reasons that are alien to that agreement is something that we consider a very dangerous in international uh, politics. It sets a bad example. Mm -hmm. These, I would say, are the, are the main problem areas which stand uh, out. Uh, and I would like to underline once again that these are rather exceptions to the rule mm -hmm. than uh, they stand as examples of the overall relationship, which remains a, a very good and working relationship in uh, so many other areas. I also asked the Consul General his thoughts about Chancellor Angela Merkel and how he sees German politics moving in the future. I have always been impressed by her style. Mm -hmm. She's a great, very modest, down-to-earth person. 
I consider her, her not only modest, extremely honest and reliable. She has a very good sense of uh, humor. She has handled many difficult questions with ethical or moral uh, compass right. that I find admirable. I uh, believe that Germany has been in very good hands with her leadership. Despite uh, the rise of the Alternative for Germany, Alternative for Deutschland, AFD, on the populist right, we continue to have a strong center. The Christian Democratic so Christian Social Union has just under 30%. The uh, Social Democrats have between 15 and 20%. If you add in the Greens with 20%, who are now a party which is clearly mainstream right. society, and the Social Democrat, mm -hmm. you come to a block of center mainstream parties which is far more than three-fourths, okay. so 75% yeah. to 80%. And so that makes me quite hopeful, optimistic, that fringe parties do not have a major chance in Germany. Sie schaffen das. Danke sehr. Danke sehr, Michael. <laughs> Thank you so much. The conversations on this episode of 1050 Bascom took place last spring, and a few important developments have happened since that should be known. Most recently, Angela Merkel has been seen shaking in a number of videos made popular in the media, raising questions about her health and whether she is experiencing some greater medical difficulties. The latest polls of German politics show Merkel's Christian Democrats maintain their popularity, but since June, the Greens have been the second most popular party, polling in the mid-20s. While falling short of victory, the AFD made significant gains in early September, surging to be the second largest party in the eastern states of Brandenburg and Saxony following elections. However, other parties continue to refuse entering the coalition with the AFD, denying them power. As the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall approaches, this split in party support shows how the east-west divide continues to challenge the German government and disrupt traditional German politics. This is 1050 Bascom. Thanks for listening. 